Good morning, church. Well, this morning we are going to talk about a prophet named Daniel. Now, Daniel wasn't really a prophet in the traditional sense of the word. For example, he didn't preach publicly to the Israelites before or even during their captivity in Babylon, like some of the other prophets did that we've been talking about in recent weeks. Yet Jesus called Daniel a prophet in Matthew 24, verse 15. And Daniel was a prophet in the sense that he received God's inspired message and he revealed to other people through both his words and his deeds the truths that God showed him. Now, Daniel is the story of a Hebrew young man and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, we don't know a lot about Daniel except that he was probably of royal birth or at least came from a noble family. We know that he was carried away from Judah to Babylon as a captive sometime in the 6th century B.C. And that the events that happened to Daniel in Babylon make up some of our favorite stories in the Bible. For example, the story of the fiery furnace that we're talking about today, the story of Daniel and the lion's den. Now, the latter half of the book of Daniel is filled with some amazing prophecies. It reads a lot like the book of Revelation. In fact, these prophecies are so specific and so accurate that it has caused some scholars to conclude that the book of Daniel might not have been written until much later, like in the 2nd century B.C. instead of the 6th century B.C. But what we learn from this book is how a person of faith can survive and thrive, and even make an impact in a strange and pagan culture that is hostile to a life of faith. Ask yourself this question, would you know what to do if your faith were to be challenged? Do you have a plan? My friends, it's good to have a plan. I remember when my family lived in Xenia for seven years while I was serving a church there. Keep in mind, Xenia is a place that is known for having experienced lots of tornadoes over the years. The parsonage that we lived in did not have a basement. And so we had a plan for any time the tornado warning went into effect. When that siren went off, all five of us, Marge, our three kids, even our two beloved pets, would head toward the bathroom that was in the center hallway of our parsonage. We each knew exactly where our place was. The three girls each sat in the bathtub. Marge sat on the toilet. I stood near the door. There wasn't enough room to do anything else but that. She would grab the safety box of important papers. I would grab a battery-powered radio and a flashlight, and there we would be. Now, we were fortunate not to live in Xenia during any of the times when tornadoes actually struck there and did damage, but we had a plan. 
And these days, think about it, every place has plans in case of emergencies. Your home, our church, your business, schools, you have to in this day and age in which we live. Because you never know when life is going to throw a curveball at you. You never know what is lurking just around the corner. You never really know when you might be called upon to choose life or death with your actions. But when you are called, you need to have a plan. You need to know what to do. I'm going to share with you from our passage of Scripture from Daniel 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear these words from the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples and nations of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Now, it's hard for us to know exactly why Nebuchadnezzar built this huge idol in the first place. Some scholars speculate that he was trying to create a unified society. Keep in mind, these were captured people from lots of different nations. They spoke different languages. They came from different cultures. They were different. They were diverse. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar decided that he needed something to unify this diverse group of people that had been brought to Babylon in captivity, something to hold them together so that his kingdom would not be so vulnerable to split apart. And how better to create unity than to form a religion? And so Nebuchadnezzar builds this statue and we're not really told in this scripture just exactly what this statue stands for. What God might be involved is left quite vague, perhaps on purpose, deliberately left vague. Because this is not a story so much about religion as it is about politics, as it is about power. And so Nebuchadnezzar is going to create some oneness. He invests a lot of time and energy and effort into motivating the people to go along. It's a remarkable statue. I mean, it is about 90 feet tall. That's a big statue. And about nine feet wide. And it is made of gold. 
I don't know about you, but that is quite an amazing statue to think about. A statue that towers over everything, a statue of immense value. And so all the people make this pilgrimage out to the plain of Dura that's outside the city of Babylon a little bit. And there they assemble to see the most spectacular sight that they've ever seen. And it is an impressive gathering of leaders, as you heard from Scripture, of all the peoples and all the cultures that maybe have ever been assembled up to that point. If all of that isn't enough to compel people to bow down, then Nebuchadnezzar decreed that failure to do so meant that you would be thrown into a fiery furnace and burned alive. So think about it for just a moment. This vast assembly of countless peoples from all kinds of different places, they've never seen anything like this before. And suddenly the music starts to play and the people are highly motivated to bow down. Literally, in verse 7, the text says, as soon as they were hearing, they were falling. It's like they couldn't fall to the ground fast enough to show the honor that they wanted to give to this statue. And then there's a little rumble in the crowd. There's a ripple of noise, but it's not music. It's quiet at first, but eventually people begin to hear it over the music because finally no one is looking at the statue anymore. They are looking at the very front of the crowd where three of the highest ranking officials in the kingdom, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are standing. They have not fallen down. And everybody else is on the ground looking at what they are doing. In the midst of a groveling nation, in an act that looks like it's either a monumental act of courage or a supremely suicidal act of folly, they refuse to bend the knee. They refuse to bow their heads. Nobody has doubt about what will happen next. These men had powerful enemies. So look at me with verse 8. It says, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. This word, denounced, could also be translated slandered. And it's intended by the writer to convey this intense amount of hostility towards these three men. These astrologers, these bureaucrats, had been placed under Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they are jealous beyond belief. And they see a chance now to bring these three men from Judah down. Let's read on. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, pipes, and all kinds of music, 
If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? King Nebuchadnezzar ends his little speech by asking a rhetorical question. He's not looking for an answer from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because he believes he already knows the answer. And he thinks that answer is that there is no God to rescue these three friends from the king's wrath. No, the king is only trying to reinforce his point to the men. But much to Nebuchadnezzar's surprise, these three men don't treat it as a rhetorical question. They respond to him. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I find their response astounding. Can you imagine making such a response to the most powerful man in the land? It is a powerful statement of faith. These three men proclaim our God is able to save us from the furnace. He is able to save us from danger. He is able to deliver us from even your hand, O king. Our God is able. My friends, you know that the Bible is filled with stories about our God who is more than able to do the things that he says he will do. We've been reading these stories so far in, in this series of the story. And there's so many more that we haven't even read yet. We've read about God who was able to give a newborn son to a woman who is 90 years old and her husband who is 100. God who is able to separate the sea so the Israelites walked through it on dry ground. God who is able to rain food from the heavens, manna and quail to feed people wandering in the desert. God who is able to make an entire city crumble to the ground by marching around it while blowing trumpets. And throughout the years, God's people retell these stories to remind us that we serve a God who is able. We have stories to tell like that today among us gathered here. We could spend the rest of this morning going around this room one by one telling the stories that reflect this one truth, that we serve a God who is able. The God we serve is able to reconcile broken marriages, and he's done that for some in this room. The God we serve is able to set people free from addictions, and he's done that for some people in this room. 
The God we serve is able to heal damaged bodies. He's able to forgive our sin, and he's done that for us in this room. The God we serve is able to provide for the greatest need, able to guide with supernatural kind of wisdom, able to inspire spiritual gifting belong beyond our human ability in unbelievable ways, able to soften the hardest heart, able to bring the farthest runaway prodigal son or daughter back home again. Every single one of us in this room, by your physical presence, by your spiritual hunger, by your being here in this community, you are a testimony to this truth that God is able. The God we serve is able, say these three men, but they don't stop there. I want us to look at another statement of devotion they make because I think this is one of the most powerful statements that any human being has ever made and can ever make. I want to think for a moment about what led up to this moment in these three young men's lives. For here they are, three young Hebrew men who had been captured and exiled to a foreign country. They have spent their lives giving to God and serving God as best they can, sometimes at incredible amounts of courage and at formidable risk. And during their time in Babylon, amazing things have happened, and they've been promoted to positions of power and authority within the government. And then one day, they hear that the king has given a new command that all people have to bow down to this statue of gold. And so they meet together. They probably talk among themselves, trying to support each other and decide what they're going to do with this unthinkable law that the king has made. How could they ever bend the knee to anything other than the God who made heaven and earth? Maybe these three men prayed that the king would change his mind, that he'd relent, that the decree wouldn't be enforced, or that they would be given an excused absence. But it doesn't happen. Maybe they prayed that when the time came, when that day came, nobody would notice if they didn't fall down and worship too because their eyes would be closed and their faces would be to the ground. But that didn't happen either. Not one of these prayers was answered. Not one. And so every, at every point, these men must have been disappointed. At every point, the nightmare, the death by fire loomed a little bit closer and became a little bit more of a reality. And now they begin to realize that every single avenue of escape has been closed off to them. The door has been shut in their face. It has been locked. It has been double bolted. Daniel 3.17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Now listen to this. This is the most powerful 
boldest statement of faith ever uttered by a human being. But even if he does not, but even if he does not, my friend, don't be deceived. Our God can rescue us still. The God who drowned Pharaoh's army, the God who felled Jericho's wall, the God who felled Goliath through the ground with one smooth stone, our God can rescue us still. But even if he doesn't, we've already decided our response. We've made up our minds. Even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will never serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Our God is able to answer our deepest prayers, to fulfill our fondest dreams. But what about when he doesn't? What do you do then? You have to ask yourself the question, is my faith dependent upon God giving me what I want? Because what about when God doesn't give me what I want? Think about Job, who refused to ever dishonor God, no matter what intense suffering came his way. No matter what happened to him, he said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. For who else could I go to? Where else could I turn? What else could I do? I think about Esther, whose story we'll share together in just a couple of weeks from now. She, like these three men, decided that she would confront a king on behalf of her people, the people of God, even though it might mean her death. And she says, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I've heard people say before, God, if you'll just answer this one prayer for me, Lord, if you'll just give me this one request, God, if you'll just come through on this one thing, I will serve you. If you do that for me, I will spend the rest of my life doing wonderful things for you. But what if God doesn't come through? What then? Will you still have faith in God? We are all facing giants today. Maybe you're facing a major health issue and you're asking for a miracle. God is able. Maybe your marriage is crumbling even today and you're asking God, God, would you save it? God is able. Maybe you're facing a financial crisis and you're asking God to bail you out. God is able. But what I'm asking today is this. What will you decide even if he does not? Will you still trust him? Will you still honor him? Will you say, even though the music is playing and the crowd is watching what I'm doing, I will never bend the knee to this statue of gold? I don't know what that means for you exactly today. 
I know that for me, from day one day to the next, it's often true that if things are going great, if God has answered my prayers, if the sun is shining and my kids are doing what they want and Marge is, uh, my wife is, you know, uh, helping me and so forth, I feel great and, and faith is easy then. But what about on those days when, when it's not so easy, it's harder it's those kinds of days that we get a little bit closer to the furnace and we begin to feel the heat getting turned up on us. It's those kinds of days when we're more tempted than ever to bend the knee to the gods of self-absorption, of self-interest, of self-pity. Because, friends, the name of that gold statue for us, the one that we are all tempted to bow down to, has a name and that name is me. And one day, ultimately, you will bow down before that statue or you will bow down before God. And today I'm calling us to a higher level of faith, to be like Jesus, who when the day came for him in a garden, said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Don't make me go through this. Spare me this suffering. You are able, Father. But then he said, not my will, but your will be done. You are able to spare me, but even if you do not, I will not turn away. I will drink this cup to the last drop. God is able. My friends, faith under fire means trusting God at his word. Faith does not mean that we either know or understand what God's specific purposes might be for our life. Faith means a willingness to love him, to trust him, to obey him, to follow him, whatever his purposes might be. Faith means that day in and day out, in good times and in bad times, we can say the God we serve is able to save us but even if he doesn't, I will never serve your gods. I'll let you in on a little secret, friends. We all live in Babylon. We live in a world that will tempt us or intimidate us to settle for less than the best, which is what God wants for us. And this is your one and only life. It's mine too. And so we need to resolve in our hearts this day what we're going to do. I think you know the rest of this story. The three men are thrown into the furnace, aren't they? It's so hot that the men that lead them up to the furnace are burned up immediately. But God protects Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames to the extent that when they walk out, their clothes are not singed. They don't even smell like smoke, not one little bit. And there's a fourth man that had been spotted in the furnace with them, who King Nebuchadnezzar says, looked like a son of the gods. It was Jesus. Imagine how different our lives might be if all of us made the decision to model that kind of faith for our children, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our world.
what a difference it would make. Let's start today. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we give you thanks that you are able. More than we can possibly ask or imagine, God, you are able to do things that we could never dream of. We tell these stories from Scripture because they remind us of how faithful you are. We tell each other our own stories because they remind how you are with your people even to this day, accomplishing amazing, miraculous things in our very midst. Lord, give us the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Give us the faith to never bend the knee, to never bow the head to anyone or anything but you, Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. Let us proclaim with loud voices from the rooftop that Jesus is our Lord and no other. And then send us forth in the power of your Holy Spirit to change the world from the kingdoms of this world to the kingdoms, to the kingdom of our God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.